Hey now, let's do this. This is Antonio and this is episode 96. Listen, you are in for a special treat because I have the most amazing conversation with author Dan Charnas. If that name sounds familiar, there's a good reason why it does. He is the author of books like Work Clean. He's the author of The Big Payback. And he also has a brand new book out on famed music producer Jay Dilla. In this episode, we talk about the power of misusing equipment. We dig into the difference between digging a lot of holes and digging deep holes and also how we can look at partnerships. But before we get into this conversation, I want to invite you to participate in my seven day Get Unstuck Challenge. People from all across the world are doing this and they love it. So if you are stuck, if you are living on autopilot, if you're going through the motions, you have a decision to make. The seven day Get Unstuck Challenge is for you and it's free. The link is in the show notes. And hey, every single week I say Send out text messages that people love, everything from motivation to career tips to giveaways now and then. If you want to receive those, send me a text message right now at 310-564-7124. That number is in the show notes. All right, that's all I have for you right now. Let's get into episode 96. Hey, welcome to the Antonio Nev Show, where I remind you each week that no matter where you stand today, your story isn't over yet. The best is ahead. I'm your host, Antonio Neves. I'm the author of Stop Living on Autopilot and a Success Coach. And this week, you are in for a treat. That's because I'm talking to my dear friend, the one and only Dan Charnas. Real quick, look, this is what the internet the interwebs will tell you about Dan Charnas. This man is a journalist and storyteller. He's the author of books, creator of television and podcasts. He's a historian of hip hop, a crusader for Mise en Place, a contributor to NPR and Billboard. And yeah, he is a professor at New York University. You see, that's what the internet will tell you. But let me tell you something the internet will never tell you about Dan. And that's this. One time, Dan and I, true story, we went to Egypt together. And while we were there, we had one of those old school books that tell you all the great hype spots to go eat. And so we went to eat at this amazing restaurant. And when we got there, we were like kind of shocked and surprised because we were the only customers and we were like, well, yo, this is a special day. We get to experience this all by ourselves." Then after we left, we walked a few blocks and we saw another restaurant and it was packed. It was jumping. And after closer inspection, we realized that we ate at the wrong damn restaurant. <laughs> Dan Charnas, do you, do you remember that moment, man? I remember that. But even more, the more legendary moment with Antonio Naves is when we finally got to Cairo off a plane. We'd been up for a long time. We decided just to take a little nap. And, you know, it was like the morning and we had the rest of the day ahead of us, just a couple of hours. We <laughs> wake up. I look at the clock. I jump out of the bed and I yell, 2 p.m.? 
<laughs> and uh, folks, you know, close friends have nicknames for each other. Well, my nickname since that moment, Antonio has never let me live it down. My nickname has been 2 p.m. Your nickname has been 2 p.m. You were so shocked that we slept in so late. So everyone that's listening, thank you for allowing me to share that story. Dan's like a good friend. I appreciate this guy so much. We also went to to grad school together. And and Dan, we're going to talk about a few things in this episode, and and we're definitely going to hit on your brand new book, Dilla Time, The Life and Afterlife of Jay Dilla, the hip-hop producer producer who reinvented rhythm. I mean, this book is hot. I invite everyone to purchase that. It's in the show notes. But before we get there, I want to start with this. You know, people heard the introduction that I gave you, such a rich introduction. You have such a unique, fascinating background. My question to you is, imagine you're on a plane and you're flying and you're seated next to a stranger. And you know what happens. That person's going to ask you a question. How does Dan Charnas answer when someone says, what do you do? That's been one of the hardest questions for me to answer in life because I have had so many iterations of myself. So now I just say author, professor, producer, or sometimes I just say writer, or sometimes I say journalist, but author, professor, producer. That that works like, for me right now. That could be an album title as <laughs> well, right? <laughs> that, that could be an album title. And, and Dan worked in the music industry for, for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And you know he wrote the book on the business of hip hop, The Big Payback. The link to that book will be in the show notes as well. And I'm curious for you, man, how do you view your career? I mean, like, if I've read through, if I read through your resume, you've had like a lot of different chapters. So I'm just curious, how do you look at your career? Is it chapters? Is it kind of like an album that has different songs on it, but they still all go together? Like, how do you view all the unique things that you've done? To continue that brilliant music analogy, by the way, nice, nice music analogy. I, uh, I feel it's almost like the career of an artist who's in a band and then they go solo and then they're in another band, and then maybe they do a clothing line. <laughs> like It's that deep, right? And it, I felt bad about it, I guess, <clears throat> for the first part of my career. Like I, wasn't, I was digging too many holes and not digging deep enough in one of them. And I had uh, dinner, as I sometimes did with my aunt, my aunt Viv, Vivian Sobchak, who uh, used to be the dean, assistant dean of the uh, UCLA Film School. And she went through a lot of different sort of phases in her career, started as an English professor, but ultimately ended up essentially inventing uh, critical, you know, sort of critical film studies. She told me, life gathers, life gathers, right? So not to be, not to feel bad about my music, my career as a music executive or a producer, because that's going to come back. And I'll be damned if it didn't. Like it really, really did. My next gig was writing comedy for TV. But it was the reason I got the gig is that I had fluency in hip hop, right? And then my next career as a journalist built on, you know, what I might unfairly view as the wreckage of my career as an executive. And I was able to turn it into a book about the entire business that was successful, like a solo career. So to all of those out there, these feelings are normal. These feelings of, you know, I failed. What do I do now? But life really does gather. And I think it has for me, and I will say Antonio has been a key person in my life on a personal level, even before he wrote books and had podcasts, to help me sort of realize that. 
I appreciate that, man. You bring up a really unique point, the point of digging a lot of holes, but maybe not all of them being deep enough. And as you were discussing that, I realized something I've never known you to call yourself, but what I view you as is an artist. Like I've never heard you call yourself an artist. Many, many writers consider themselves artists, many screenwriters. You've written for, you've written for television. You've done, you've written for television. Obviously you've produced music. I mean, so many different things. But I wonder, and I, and I ask this from a personal question as well, because I've, I've dug a lot of holes in my life and maybe they haven't been deep enough. And I've always felt this tension, if you will, with the world of friends and the community, those folks that have really leaned in to, to nine to fives, mm-hmm. who've had those careers at the same organizations for a long time. And I've seen their, their upward trajectory, their arc. And I feel like mine has definitely been more of a, a, a bumpy kind of ride. And I'm like, should I have gone all in corporate guy? But I know I'd be the whole time being corporate guy. I'd be thinking about what I'm missing out on, what I wanted to pursue. Back to the word artist. Have you ever given yourself permission in all that you've done to call yourself an artist? That's funny. I, I keep thinking the artist formerly known as Dan Charney. <laughs> um, you know, only recently, and I guess it's because I... I realize that I love teaching. Uh, I'm a professor and I, I do enjoy the work, but I also feel like I am most at home when I am creating, or let me put it another way. I don't really feel I have great mercenary and commercial impulses. Like that's not my default position. My default position is, ooh, I can make money doing this, you know, or uh, yeah, let me see if I can get into the market this way. It's, I'm, my temperament is more, ooh, let me make this thing. You know, whether it's a book, whether it's a TV show, whether it's a podcast, whatever it is, I just want to make the thing. And yeah, I mean, I can sell it, I can market it, but ultimately what really compels me and what I end up defaulting to is the making of. And that's, it, it caused a lot of tension in my life for the first part when I, when I was trying to be an executive. And, and it's funny, like, you know, a story from my recording career, uh, rather, you know, my career in the music business, I was an A&R person, a talent scout. And the job of the A&R person is to find an artist worthy, who's like sort of commercially and creatively worthy, pair them with producers, and, you know, help get their music out. And what I ended up defaulting to is I got really into the creation process of the albums, but not into the wheeling and dealing and signing and meeting all the managers. And I missed a lot of opportunities that way because I didn't really understand who I was and who I wasn't at that time. I'm actually a producer, not an A&R person, or, or at least now that I know the difference, maybe I could be, <laughs> but you know, that's not my natural default position. Yeah. I mean, even as you say all of that, the word artist comes out to me because artists create. And many times other people are the ones that figure out how to get people to consume, how to purchase. But one thing you've done regularly throughout your career is create. And and Dan speaks extremely humbly about his career in the music industry of what you say, trying to be an executive. I mean, this guy has worked with major names uh, like Rick Rubin, and we can go on and on and on. The, the folks you've had the opportunity to collaborate, work with, etc. So I want y'all to know when you go <laughs> dig on the internet for this guy, we're not. <laughs> this isn't some amateur. Briefly, you are working with students, you know, on a regular basis at New York uh, University, an esteemed institution. I, I think it's fair to say. Correct me if I'm wrong. Many of the students you work with may consider themselves artists in the 
the music field. So I'm curious, going back to that whole notion of digging a lot of holes but not going deep enough, what type of advice, if at all, are you imparting on them when they come to you for advice? Hmm. I mean, it depends on what they want, right? If, you know, somebody is geared towards, say, for example, being a performer, I'm very sympathetic to that. And I tell them to, you know, go all in on it. There, there have been a lot of cases where students exhibit just incredible talent and their music is some of the best I've heard. And by the way, I teach at the Clive Davis Institute for Recorded Music. So it is geared towards undergrads who want careers in the music business. For example, Maggie Rogers is someone who graduated from that program. and was actually the very first student in the first row of my very first class. Wow, um, and all the amazing success she's experienced yeah, since yeah. then. And I take no take no credit for that, by the way. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I sometimes they get scared and they don't want to keep going in the artistic direction. Oh, they want to get a desk job. They want to, you know, maybe go back to school and get another degree just to be safe. <laughs> for undergrads, I don't really like the just to be safe business. I understand that 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 college is an investment, but just because there's no public support for it. And just because uh, universities, you know, can't seem to get the price of, uh, you know, tuition down, doesn't make, doesn't change the nature of what, why the experience is important and how you should use it. So I do feel like those early 20s are a time to be, if you really have the talent, to be focused on that talent, do it. You know, the worst that can happen is that you fail by whatever measure you've set for yourself and then you gather it up into your next thing. Yeah, I mean, that experience you're going to gather as well. I mean, one of my, I, I wish I didn't jump head into my career straight out of undergrad. I wish I would have experienced, experienced more being an artist traveling across the world, but I thought I had to get this money. I had to make this money that wasn't money at all. And I know all too well, as I'm sure a lot of people listening know that, that feeling, even as adults <laughs> in their 30s and their 40s and their 50s of just to be safe or or getting scared as they're about to pursue a creative endeavor. Last question as it relates to your work as a professor. I mean, how lucky are you on a regular basis to interact with 18, 19, 20-year-olds, these these young men and women that I'm sure a lot of them have like some optimism. You know, they're so excited about life. I mean, you're a man that's married, that has has, has an amazing son. What do you learn from, I don't even want to call them kids, but what, what, what do these kids remind you of on a regular basis when you interact with them? Well, they, they remind me, first of all, they are themselves, right? And so when I, when I engage with students, I, I suppose I'm fortunate to not see them through the lens of myself, because I actually really, of all the things that I guess I've had regret about in my life and career, one of them is not my college experience. I had a fantastic college experience. And so when I see them enjoying their college experience, it makes me super happy. And, you know, I, I, I guess on a more practical level, they certainly help me stay a little more current in music than I would, you know, not having them around, especially having just spent the last four years writing about an artist who died in two, 2006 and sort of focusing on music that happened, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, it's great. It's great. And listen, students are just people, right? They're a cross-section of society. And, uh, you know, some of them are super, super talented and super great. And others, you know, really, let's say, have a lot of growing to do. And you hope that they will. 
What an amazing feedback. You come in, you want to share something with uh, someone to get their feedback. I'm going to start using that line. Like, you know, there's a good opportunity for growth for you. Uh, <laughs> instead of saying, you know, this is really bad. This is yeah. not up to par. You know, what a great opportunity you have for growth. Yeah. We're going to get into Jay Dilla here in a second. And I'm really excited to introduce him to the folks in the audience that aren't familiar with him and, and his work. One thing about you, Dan, and, and your work and your books, specifically, I'm talking about your new book, on Jay Dilla, but also your previous book. You've had a couple of books prior to this one, uh, The Big Payback. I mean, you write books. I'm talking about books that are like 500 pages. These are no joke. You know, one of my favorite authors is Robert Carroll. And when I remember I read The Big Payback, that was a book that I read. And this isn't hyperbole for me, man. I was like, wow. This, when I think about like a book like The Power Broker or the books I love by Robert Caro about LBJ, I'm like, damn, Dan went in on a Robert Caro kind of level. And if you're not familiar with Robert Caro and what he does, just Google him. And it's so impressive. I mean, just the journalism, the scholarship that's involved is on a whole nother level. There's no phoning it in. There's a question coming. My question <laughs> is, <laughs> my question is, how do you approach? And by the way, Dan has another book called Work Clean. That, that's, uh, I'll let him describe that if he wants to. Yeah. But how do you approach big projects when you know you're undertaking something that's massive, right? A book that's going to be over 500 pages probably. How do you approach that so you can actually finish it? I know that's a big open-ended question, but I'm just <laughs> curious. curious. Well, well, the first part of it, is to go into the project thinking that the book is just going to be a tiny little book or a short, yeah, you know, three hundred page book. <laughs> but then the problem is I'm the one doing it, and that that problem is, and I'll illustrate this with a story from our history at the at the uh, Columbia Graduate School for Journalism. In my very first journalism course, remember it was called RW One, Porting and Writing One. Each of us select a beat, right, a neighborhood in the city in New York City to report from. And then we have to do a big story at the end of the semester as our final project. And the neighborhood was one that I, I picked in the Bronx called Hunts Point. And I was doing a piece in the terminal market, you know, the food markets there. And the idea for the piece was, do the people in the neighborhood actually get to work here? Or is it all people from outside the neighborhood coming in to work? And the, the markets are essentially designed by the same, literally by the same architect as the Atlanta Hartsfield Airport were these long, long terminals. So if you're at the end, if you're, there's like this hallway that looks like the Matrix. Remember Matrix 2 when they go to see the architect? You can't even see the end of the hallway because right. the building's a half mile long. And so I would walk down these hallways and knock on doors to try to get people to talk to me and just terribly worried that I wasn't getting the story or getting the source material. And I remember sharing this with my professor, Kim Nauer, and just apologizing that I didn't do enough reporting. And she said, you do plenty of reporting. So there's this motivation in me. I need to get the story. And I report all the way down to the wire. And I guess I do get the story. I mean, now I, I know, okay, I'm a reporter. I can do this. I have that confidence now. And then I, so I guess to answer your question, how do you approach a big project? You, it's like you're in a rowboat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean alone and you can't see the shore behind you and you can't see the shore ahead of you and you just have to keep rowing it's 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 the next row and it's the next stroke and it's the next stroke 
and you will get there. And often it helps to look back and just see the progress that you have made to also finish the projects in, in chunks too. You know, it was a big thing for me. I wasn't, the book wasn't done and the deadline was coming and I wasn't going to make it. But I said, I'm going to turn the first half of this book in. And turning the first half of the book in, while it didn't make reporting the second half easier necessarily, still a year or more of work, it did let me know that I can do this. Every little bit helps, especially in a big project. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense. And something else I'm really hearing you say and what I know about you, by the way, Dan, I almost got, I feel like you almost got me killed. I remember when you were reporting <laughs> We were like following trucks, seeing if yep. where, where like where fresh fruit was coming from. Was it like yep. where, there's that's a whole other story? I forgot about that, by the way. Yep. Uh, writing down license plates, tailing people, like you're too close, man. <laughs> but also, one thing you don't do, and I know this that you don't cut corners. Meaning, like you said, you, you had half the book done, you had more to go. So, for example, just briefly, the book Dilla Time: The Life and Afterlife of Jay Dilla, yeah, uh, the hip hop producer who reinvented rhythm. That mm-hmm. that links in the show notes. How many people? Did you interview for that book, for example? Uh, almost 200. That one, almost 200 people. So just yeah. think about that. 200 people. And my, my hunch is all those interviews at minimum were at least an hour. So you can imagine, folks, how – and that's at minimum. And there's people you probably interviewed multiple times. So you had hours of footage that needed to be transcribed and you had to go through what was usable, what not usable. And then not only you get this information, then you actually have to go verify it and vet it to confirm it's actually accurate. I mean, there's so much work that goes into that. So I, I applaud you for that. But let's talk about Jay Dilla for a second. For, for that person listening to this who's hearing the name Jay Dilla for the first time. Who's that? Who, who, who's Jay Dilla? Like, what, what's the log line or the basics of this man? All right. Well, uh, first of all, I wrote this book. The hard part about writing this book is I wrote it not just for the fans, but I wrote it for people who don't know anything about music at all. Right. And it's an attempt to make an argument about why this person, this hip hop beat maker who just worked on a drum machine, who had only a very short career in the 1990s and the 2000s, why this person is as important as the names you do know, like Louis Armstrong, Billie Holiday, James Brown, John Coltrane. Why do jazz players all over the world today emulate this guy's music? What is that about? What is the big deal about Jay Dilla? So what I tell them is this. Jay Dilla, born James DeWitt Yancey in Detroit in 1974, was essentially the only person to come out of electronic music making, meaning, meaning the people who make music on machines, sequencers, synthesizers, uh, drum machines, samplers, right? The only person to come out of that long tradition Um, which has existed since the 1950s, to fundamentally change the way traditional musicians who play quote-unquote real instruments think about musical time and rhythm. And so what is that big change? Here's how I explain it. For the last hundred years, our popular music, our global popular music, whether it's the Beatles, whatever you like, right? You know, uh, uh, Rolling Stones, uh, uh, Stevie Wonder, country music, have had two time fields, right? One is called straight and one is called swung. Straight time comes to us from the European tradition, right? It's the idea that beats are counted evenly 
one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. But in America, in the 20th century, because of the African American pres uh, the, uh, the African presence on this continent, African Americans developed a completely new kind of time field where beats are uneven. So instead of bop 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 bop, it's bop 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 bop. And those two time fields have basically governed our popular music for the last 100 years. What Jay Dilla did in the 1990s was collide those two time fields together, straight and swung simultaneously, putting them in conflict with each other to give a, a lurching, stumbling, some people have said drunken, woozy, limping time feel that some people hear like, oh, that's wrong. That's off. And yet since, you know, during his life and since his death from a very rare blood disease in 2006, musicians all over the world have adopted that time feel. It's now you know, taught in conservatories, right? Uh, Berkeley College of Music has a, uh, an Adilla ensemble. Uh, I taught Adilla course at NYU. So the book is not just a biography of the man, but it's also a biography of music in general and a biography of rhythm, I guess. It's funny, I just came up with that. Why not use that? <laughs> never too, never uh, too late. Well, I want to just briefly, as you were yeah. sharing that, and just briefly, share some of the, the artists that Dilla worked with during uh -huh. his life that, that we would recognize. Sure. Well, from the hip-hop world, there's a tribe called Quest, with whom he was really allied, De La Soul, Buster Rhymes, Common, The Far Side. But then, as traditional musicians started adopting his time feel, he began working with people like The Roots, D'Angelo, Erica Badu, uh, Bilal, and then his time feel, even without his presence, his time feel ended up on records by Janet Jackson, Michael Jackson, uh, and then finally jazz artists started adopting it. So people like Robert Glasper, Jason Moran. So his influence is pervasive, but outside a very small group of people, nobody knows, or very few people know that this person is kind of responsible for that. You know, how he's the genesis of it. Yeah, during his life, how celebrated slash appreciated was he, or was he what people would say, call, quote unquote, underground? Well, he was unsung and undercredited. And this leads to something that, you know, you and I were talking about. By the about way, real quick. Show. Yeah, yeah. By the way, that's something right there. I mean, that's a television show right there, unsung and uncredited. Can you imagine going through the pantheon of artists of music of those folks who were unsung and uncredited that played a major role, but continue on. He was unsung. Well, Antonio must not watch uh, TV one a lot because there is a show called unsung Antonio. Watch I more TV. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I don't, that's funny. All right, go ahead. All right. So, uh, he, began his career when he was discovered by this incredible rapper and MC and producer named Q-Tip of A Tribe Called Quest. And Q-Tip was and is, I think, a very magnanimous, generous person. Q-Tip is not a mercenary. He's an artist, just like we were saying before. And so he said, oh, why don't you join our crew? Like, literally, like who invites another rival producer you know, not rival, but, you know, somebody who could, you know, take your shine away, you know, and or, or draw some light away from you into the crew, right? That was a very generous 
thing. He started introducing, and not just to his crew, but introducing him to everybody, you know, around all the other artists. It was because Q-Tip was a evangelist for Jay Dilla, that JD at the time, that people knew who he was. Then Q-Tip issued an invitation to Jay Dilla to become an official part of a new production team called the UMA, in which every all the work would be credited to the group, meaning no matter who produced it, it would be credited to the UMA, right? They'd get the money for their work, you know, behind the scenes, but the credit would be blanket. And here is where the problem lie for Jay Dilla in an early part in his career. When we love somebody or care about somebody, often we give them the thing that we want for ourselves. And what Q-Tip most wanted was to be sort of part of a crew and, and to lay back in this sort of band of brothers. And all the work that Q-Tip ever did was credited to A Tribe Called Quest. He's not credited as a solo producer on much of his work. And so that arrangement, everybody being credited as the group, worked for Q-Tip because he had already made a name for himself. It did not work for James, for JD, for J. Dilla. And for many years, he was conflicted. He was ambivalent about this, you know, grateful to Q-Tip, loves Q-Tip. You know, how do you go to Q-Tip and say, yo, I, I really don't want to be that closely related because I want people to know it's me. It took James, see, five years to be able to say the words to Q-Tip. That's, that's stunning to me and shows just how complicated relationships are, but how important credit actually is. I, I want to dig into that a little bit. And but before we dig into that, because I want to just such an, an amazing individual. And I want to talk briefly to you in a second about some things that someone who may not be into hip hop can still maybe learn from him and apply into their, their lives. Some things maybe they can think about. But before we, I asked you that, just a brief question. If Jay Dilla was not from Detroit, my home state of Michigan, by the mm. way. I'm curious how much him being from Detroit, where let's let's be clear, a lot of people don't think about Michigan when you think about hip hop, right? Even though, of course, I have amazing artists that I love from, from Michigan. I can list a lot of them right now, current day, past tense. Uh, but if he was a dude that was from Atlanta, that was from a, a, a New York, a Bay or LA, would he be, you think that possibly could have affected how society, how the music industry views him today? Well, if you pick up the book, and open it, you see that the motif of the book is the map of Detroit. So I'm tipping my hand already. I, I feel very much that Detroit is, plays a huge role in why, who James is and why he did what he did. There's no question about it to me. Got it. Okay. So someone who, who's not into hip hop, they may not ever listen to his music, but they are thinking about purchasing this book because they want to learn. What's something you think they can learn? Uh, about how he approached life that they can apply to theirs. I mean, something that already has been written about in, in reviews for this book, really amazing reviews. People are, are applauding this. One thing you write about is how he misused the equipment. Could you mm -hmm. talk about that a little yeah. bit? And I must tip my cap to Arthur Jaffa, the, the great visual artist who, in my conversation with him about Dilla, you know, he... He, he talked about this sort of grand tradition of misusing the equipment, um, and especially in, in relation to African-American artists. You know, he talked about um, 
the European idea of what music is and isn't is built into the structure of the piano. Like there are 12 notes, no more than 12 notes, right? And they are in this particular scale and you must play these notes, right? Um, And Thelonious Monk, who as some folks know, is a great uh, jazz, uh, you know, um, icon, used flub notes. Like he, he jammed his fingers onto the piano keyboard to get the notes in between the notes. Mm -hmm. That is an example of misusing the equipment. And so one of the things that, that Jay Dilla did, uh, and how he achieved this limping conflicted time feel is that there was a drum machine that just, and I spoke to the inventor of this drum machine, the NPC, right? Created by Roger Lynn. And this was like an accident that Roger Lynn allowed every element that was laid into the drum machine to be on a different time field. And that, you know, one track could be straight, one track could be swung, one track could be swung severely, uh, you could shift things around. And it wasn't intentional on his part. He wasn't thinking like, oh, people are going to, uh, adjust these elements independently of each other because of course nobody ever had but this quirk of the drum machine was a way for and and james just used this function or misused it so severely that stuff sounded wrong to people right when they heard it and so misusing the equipment is often a way that innovation happens right we're really not supposed to use, uh, you know, beepers were for doctors, right? Right, <laughs> you know, um, but suddenly they became a way that you know, before the advent of cell phones, that we could all communicate with each other. It became widespread. You know, there are many other instances in our popular culture of things being invented for one thing, but being used for another. I don't that's know. a great example. You, you know, that that's very helpful. And I think as people, no matter what they do professionally, I think it's a great way to start thinking about how they potentially can misuse things to their advantage. And you just had a flashback to college, rocking my my my, my clear blue pager on my on my hip. And I completely forgot about my pager I used to have back in the day. So thank you for that memory. <laughs> uh, something about Dilla also that, you know, you and I were talking about prior the hitting record is how he approached partnerships. I'm curious if you could speak a little bit about him and his relationship with partnerships. Yeah, well, you know, um, he was locked in this sort of partnership with Q-Tip and, and, and Ali Shaheed Muhammad for a while called the Uma, And it was very hard for him to stay in it, right? Because, you know, he wasn't getting the credit he deserved. And what's interesting is right after that, on the heels of that, he jumps into sort of another unofficial partnership called the Soulquarians with the Roots and Erica Badu and Common and D'Angelo. And in some way, he was smothered in brotherhood there. And when he left, when he finally became a solo artist, he literally changed his name. That's when he changed from JD to J. Dilla. He tried to leave all of it behind. And I think what he realized, even though he could be super generous with his with his people, right? Especially his protégés. He was very good to his protégés uh, in many, you know, gave a lot of them a career. I think in many ways he, he wanted 
it's not that he didn't want partnerships. Is that I think he felt partnerships were limited. Mm. And I think he lived that in his personal life as well. Um, he wanted a certain freedom to enter into and to leave partnerships as it as he saw fit. And my last question for you, as you mentioned earlier, and, and people will know once they Google his name and learn more, is that he is no longer with us. He passed away, like you said, from a rare blood disorder. I'm curious how much him knowing he had this rare blood disorder affected how he showed up. Was he aware that odds are it were he wasn't going to find his way into his late 30s, 40s, 50s, and that probably created an, an intensity for him uh, as an artist and how he created. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, he got sick in early 2003 and he passed in 2006 and he never stopped working. Although the, 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 the procedures that he had to go through to sort of stay healthy took a lot of time. And he was not a person who even stopped to eat a lot of times when he was in his prime. So one of the great that's really, and I, I'm so glad that you brought it up because it really is yet another sort of life lesson from uh, Dilla's work. I think I say at one point in the book, after he got out of the hospital, you know, when he first went into the hospital, he was brought a small, you know, like a drum machine that he could use. And he also had a laptop computer that he could compose on. And he decided, I think he realized that then he could use every bit of time and should use every bit of time at his disposal to do what he loved. And he did it to the very end. He never stopped. Amazing. Well, man, I can't thank you more than enough for this amazing conversation. I love talking to you. I'm excited to really dig into this book, Dilla Time, The Life and Afterlife of Jay Dilla, the hip hop producer who reinvented rhythm by my homeboy, Dan Charnas. It's available Right now, link is in the show notes along with links to all of other all of Dan's other books as well. Dan Charnas, thank you so much for joining me, man. I love you, man. Love you, homeboy. All right. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Antonio Nev Show. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dan Charnas as much as I did. For more information about the episode, just head on over to my website at theantonionevs.com. If you still haven't followed the show just yet or left a review, I invite you to do so right now. And if there is someone in your life you know would love to hear this episode, I invite you to hit that share button and share it with them right now. Okay, hey, I will see you back here next week with another great episode. In the meantime, I want you to remember that the best is ahead. When you work and believe that the best is ahead, things begin to change for the better. Never forget you have a say in this.